Lord God, we thank you for your word here. Uh, We need it. We pray that we would not only hear the words of Jesus, but that we would also have Jesus given to us. So please soften our hearts and make us receptive to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage today, as we are continuing to go through our series on the Sermon on the Mount, is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the text for that in your worship guide there. Matthew 7, chapter 1 through 12, uh, we're starting to get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're kind of, in a way, rounding some of these last bases. We only have a few weeks left in it here, and where Jesus has been talking about what it means to be a whole person disciple. Uh, a, a, a whole disciple, a disciple not only of, of, of the kingdom of wholeness, uh, which he is, is bringing into this world, but also being a disciple who follows after Jesus with their whole heart, with their whole selves. And so we get now to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is uh, the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Amen. This is the word of God. You can't judge me. This is one of the most common phrases of our time. No matter, or never mind that we put judgments on all sorts of things. But there's one thing that you can't judge. You can't judge me. The opening verses of Jesus' words that we have here in the Sermon on the Mount are one of, one of these common defenses that people give of this idea. Right, lots of people do it, whether they believe in Jesus and his claims or not. Judge not that you not be judged. Right, it seems very plain. Don't judge others. But if we scratch even just a little bit here, we see that this claim doesn't really work. For one thing, just a few verses later that we read, Jesus starts making judgment calls about all sorts of people. He calls people hypocrites. He calls people dogs and pigs. And about you, but I think Jesus is sounding awfully judgy right there. Throughout the rest of the Gospels then, which outline the life of Jesus, he keeps making these judgment calls upon people. He judges the Pharisees and he calls them snakes and sons of the devil. We like that story about where Jesus gets righteously angry and he overturns all the tables in the temple. But isn't he judging them too? 
Jesus said that he came to bring a sword upon the earth, that he separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus is making judgments against people. See, we can't use this phrase as a defense then against people judging us or others. To do that here is to cherry pick Jesus' words from the whole context about who he is and about what he says about himself. Now, as I said before, we make judgments all the time. Every critique that we make about our food, every Yelp review, every assessment of a performance, our hot takes on the latest event, these are all sorts of judgments. Though we may not use the word judge, but that's the idea that's going on in this passage. The idea here wrapped up with the word judge in this context is about forming conclusions and making discernments. Or maybe instead of saying judge, we could use the word judgment call. It's how you assess. It's how you evaluate. It's how you exercise proper judgment or make the right call. And with this understanding here, judgment isn't negative. Assessing something as good and as beautiful or as worthy is a positive judgment. You're making a positive assessment. So judging itself isn't the issue here. Jesus isn't telling disciples not to make assessments, not to critique, even if those are directed towards others. But what he's getting at here is how a disciple judges, how a disciple critiques or makes an assessment. Verse 2, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, make sure that you're being fair in your evaluations and your assessments and your judgments. Don't be unreasonable. Don't hold a double standard. Because whatever standard that you use to measure others is the same standard that you ought to also use for yourself. And consequently, is the same standard that God ought to use for you. Jesus' words are intended, then, to give us some pause in how we make criticisms. And this whole passage, verses 1 through 12 here, seems like a bunch of unrelated statements, as if Jesus was starting to realize that time was closing on his sermon, and he was starting to, to fit in some things that he couldn't fit any other way. So far as we've seen, the flow and progression of the Sermon on the Mount is pretty clear up until this point. But I do, though, think that all of these, these sections, all these statements are tied loosely together by this theme of assessment, which opens everything up in verses 1 and 2. And then it closes with verse 12, which is we commonly known as the golden rule. And I think that actually ties the bow quite nicely. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And that includes the way that you critique and judge and assess. And so we're going to divide this up here and look at each section with that understanding of assessment. And the first one is verses 1 through 5. Honest, that we can honestly assess ourselves before others. We should honestly assess ourselves before others. The Sermon on the Mount puts forward a particular vision for life where disciples follow after Jesus with their whole selves. They seek the kingdom of God with their body, with their soul, with their mind. They live together as family, as brothers and sisters who are united together under the fatherly care of God. But even though we're given this grand, beautiful vision for life in the kingdom of God, as we experience it now, there's another important aspect for us all to consider in this. That we're still sinners. 
that no matter who it is, all disciples are still sinners. We are called to seek the kingdom and to follow after Jesus, but we still do so incompletely. No one in this life is exempt from failures or wrongs. We all do. And we will all continue to do so until we are renewed then in, God, in, in God's presence. And this passage then presupposes the fact that you and I will be imperfect disciples. But it doesn't say it's okay. It doesn't give a pass to that fact. But rather it highlights the need that these sins ought to be dealt with in life. And most often, God uses one another as tools then to lead us into holiness. He uses us with one another then to show us our weaknesses and to show us our sins and our blind spots. If you want to grow as a disciple, if you want to grow in faithful living, then Christian community is one of the the gifts that God gives us. We don't grow in holiness on our own. We grow in holiness best together. And this means then that we assess or that we judge one another. Not in a condemnatory way, but in gentle ways that point out our sins and then lead us back to the reconciling gospel, that lead us back to Jesus. See, it's the how that matters in this. It's how we do it. And Jesus gives a scenario then to illustrate this principle of how this sort of criticism is to be done. And he sets out a a scene of two people then working in a wood shop. And the first one gets some some sawdust in in his eyes or maybe a a small splinter. And his partner then in the shop starts noticing him rubbing his eyes and sees sees it watering and it's puffy. And he says, hey, you got something in your eye. Hey, let me come over and, and, and help you get it out. So this guy kind of, gets his hand away from his eye as he's been rubbing his eyes and he looks and sees this ridiculous image. His partner there has an eight foot four by four that's somehow sticking out of his eye socket. Hey, let me get that as he starts clumsily stumbling around the wood shop. And this guy clearly has problems then. This guy is wholly unfit to be helping him. But there's a legitimate issue with the first one with the sawdust in his eye. This other guy, though, with the same issues, in fact, the same issues that are even bigger, is he really the one to help? It's a ridiculous scenario that Jesus gives, but Jesus oftentimes uses these ridiculous scenarios then to illustrate something serious for us to consider. We chuckle a little bit, we laugh, but then our guard drops down and he begins to move in. He says, make sure that you are assessing your fellow disciples with the same standard that you apply to yourself as you critique a sister or a brother. Be sure that you're doing so fairly and looking at your own self as well. See, the issue here isn't critiquing the other one's sin. You and I need a little gentle critique if we're to grow into being whole disciples. But are we being charitable and gracious? Are we applying the same standards to ourselves? Do I have worse issues to deal with as I point out the minutiae of others? Do I only focus on their minutiae while ignoring my own glaring sins? Jesus says to be honest in our assessments and in our critiques of others before we level them. Or, uh, uh, sorry, assess, uh, be honest in our assessments of ourselves before we, we then level them against others. Because the issue here is the hypocritical action, being content to point out the small issues in others while then ignoring our own bigger, more glaring issues. And it's important for us to see that this doesn't 
always done with an intent to be harshly critical. Just as often, it's when someone is genuinely wanting to help another. They see a particular sin or issue in the life of their fellow disciple, and then they step in to address it because they want that person to grow. And that isn't, that's sin there is an obstacle. But they look at the other without first looking at themselves with that same standard or criteria. Are they really the right person to be helping? Now, there very well might be sin to be resolved in that person's life, but have they first taken an honest look with the same standard in their own life first? Are they only focusing on the other without also examining themselves? The thing is, even with a noble intent, even with an intent to do good, it's still wrong if we are using unfair or different standards of critique or assessment of others than we do towards ourselves. Instead, we ought to be more charitable in our assessments of others. If we're going to use the same standards towards others that we do for ourselves, then it leads us with two options. The first would be either to be more critical of ourselves, or the second would be to be more charitable towards others. I would actually suggest that we do a mix of them because I think they're quite complementary. And so the principle of it all is this. Before I critique another for a particular sin... I will first critique myself honestly with the same standard. Now, for some of us, that might sound a little scary. We might approach this with a little bit of trepidation because if we really get to this, if we really understand this here, it will require us to be truly honest with ourselves. And maybe some of us haven't taken a truly honest, objective look at ourselves in a very long time. But the cross of Jesus Christ calls me to be honest and self-critical. Because when I look at the cross, I am reminded again of just who I am apart from him. That I'm a desperate sinner and that I'm in need of grace. And the cross then shows me over and over that the only way that I could be saved and I could only be brought into proper fellowship with God came th- was because of a, a bloody crucifixion of Jesus then to remove the wrath of God from my head. See, if I'm honest with myself, I need to take a look at the cross and realize that the cross is the ultimate criticism against me. Nothing criticizes me more than the cross. But here's the thing, though, also. I can be open, and I can be honest, and I can be self-critical with myself at the cross, not only because it shows me just how bad my sin is, but more importantly, it also shows me where all my sin is absolved and where I am free It shows me that I am reconciled and that everything is paid in full and that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So I don't have to run from my sin or hide from its reality because there is no sin in my life or in my heart that cannot be and has not been dealt with definitively at the cross. And friends, that's the same for you if you are in Jesus. The passage here presumes that we will encourage then one another to grow in holiness. God is using us to become more whole disciples with one another. And this kind of honest self-reflection and criticism as we view ourselves under the shadow of the cross is what enables us then to be better used in each other's lives. It's only after we recognize the beam that it's in our own eye that that beam can be taken out. And, it's, and if that beam is removed from our eyes, then as we bow down at the feet of Jesus in repentance and we, we ask him, for him to be merciful to us, 
in our ignorance and our unfair assessments. And after that beam is removed then, then we understand the nature of grace and the nature of repentance better than we did before. And as we understand those concepts better and as we know them more concretely in our individual lives, then we are sharper and we are more fit tools to be used by God in the lives of our fellow disciples. We will be more empathetic towards them when we gently point out the sawdust in them because we know what it's like to have beams in our own eyes. We can come alongside them with more gentleness and charity, with a greater sense of care. We don't have to have unreasonable expectations where we think that they should be in their own process of holiness. We are able to be more effective tools to be used by God for each other when we know ourselves. But second though, a second honest assessment, we, can, we are to honestly assess our approach to a hostile world in verse six. Honestly assess our approach to a hostile world. These truths of the cross, of reconciliation in Jesus and of our self-honesty, they're treasure to us. We hold them valuable because we understand the beauty and the life-giving freedom that is in them. They're like pearls, beautiful pearls to us. We hold them as being holy because they are rooted in the very self-giving and merciful character of God himself. They are wrapped up in his name. And like anything of ours that we, that we treasure and is good and is beautiful, we want to share it. We want to show everyone. But at the same time, though, we see here that in Jesus' words, it requires a level of discernment. And he gives this analogy of, of throwing to, to dogs what is holy or, or holy food for them to eat and then throwing valuable pearls to pigs. Some of you dog owners probably think, well, giving something nice to them every once in a while, that's a, that's a, that's a good thing, right? That is if they don't snatch it from the table while you're sitting there. But what's the, what's the big deal? What's the big deal with, with giving, giving food, this holy food to dogs? Well, scrub your mind with the idea of a, of, a, of a lab or a poodle or a retriever or whatever else. The dogs in Jesus' day running around Jerusalem were feral mongrels. They were filthy and matted and vicious. If you've been other parts of the world and you've seen dogs in the streets, that's a much closer idea to Jesus' cultural context. And throwing holy food then to these dogs is treating it in a worthless way or pigs. A pig was not only an unclean animal to the Jews, but they sit in it and they, they sit in their own filth too. Pigs are dirty. And tossing what was valuable, tossing your pearls, for instance, was unthinkable. It would be of no use to them and they would only tra- end up trampling, after the, uh, trampling the pearls and, and dirtying them. So what's the meaning of Jesus' is saying? The Sermon on the Mount is full of words which challenge the disciple. They rattle us and they shake us from what we expect and they don't let us get very comfortable. And as I've been reading and studying this week, I think this is the hardest of all of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Not because of a particular difficulty in understanding the meaning of them. The difficulty, though, is in understanding the application, what we're called to do. And this is what it means. As the disciple is a steward of the gospel, of the holy and the dearly held truth, be discerning and assess the individual and the circumstances in sharing that gospel. Because there may be potentially a time to walk away and to leave that person. 
I get that's probably hard for most of us to really wrap our minds around. Because in one sense, it seems unloving towards that person. Or it goes against so much else that we read about in the New Testament about being a witness to the gospel. And it's important to see that those are the general rules. Those are actually the real definitions. This is at here is the exception. Rules and applications are drawn from generalities, not from the exceptional circumstances. To better understand this though, and to, to really see how Jesus could say this, let's think a little bit more about a couple other New Testament passages. One is just a few chapters later in Matthew 10, when Jesus commissions and he sends out the 12 disciples to be his witnesses of, of, the, the, of the kingdom across Palestine. And they're to go to all the villages. They're to proclaim the gospel. They're to perform miracles. And then the villages and towns which reject them, Jesus says, leave them behind and shake the dust from your feet. Or then in Acts, the apostle Paul is commissioned as, as, uh, as an official emissary of Jesus, as an apostle to continue his mission and to take the gospel and to spread the news of the kingdom to the rest of the, the Roman empire. And there are a couple instances there in Acts 13 and Acts 18 where Paul first goes to the synagogues to preach and though yet when he encounters open hostility, he declares that he will turn aside from them and give the gospel to those who will gladly receive it. I think that's the main principle here. The disciple is to freely give the gospel to a dying world which needs it. That's the overlying principle, but there at the same time might be, I think might is what's key. There might be occasions where it's like running against a brick wall where you encounter open hostility, where you are getting nowhere except being hopelessly and vehemently berated. And instead of continuing to press and walk away and take the gospel, and this is key here too, take the gospel to others who are, who are needy and might respond more favorably. And this is where discernment and assessment is brought in. And if that's the occasion, then we need to look at the situation with proper judgment. Again, this might sound unloving towards those individuals, but this isn't an issue of being stingy with the gospel or of saying that those individuals or those groups of people are condemned. But there is an element, though, where a situation might conflict with our love of God. After all, Jesus used the words holy and pearls to describe the truths of the gospel and of the kingdom. These things involve the very name and, 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 the, and they are the things of God. It is an invaluable treasure to us. When we looked at the Lord's Prayer a couple weeks ago, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, what is it? Jesus prays that the Father's name would be upheld and extolled as holy across the world. This is the will of God. To see his name lifted up as holy, not defiled and dragged through the muck needlessly as people openly mock it. And continuing then to give opportunity to it being profaned over and over by the same people in the same situation isn't treasuring his name. But we also, though, need to see that this is a very serious thing and it ought to be considered to be the exception. John Stott, the, uh, the, well-known, uh, the well-known theologian and, and biblical uh, commentator, I read he made the comment here, that I, made, uh, I read this this week, that he makes the comment that he only considered that this happened, he said, maybe once or twice in his whole life in ministry. And he had a long life in ministry. He engaged with a lot of people. And even the fact that this is only one verse here shows us that this is the exception. Again, especially considering the whole breadth and the theme throughout the whole Bible of taking the news of God's mercy to all kinds of people. 
But what might be some potential situations where this is warranted? Perhaps it's the occasion or the circumstance. Maybe it's engaging in trolls and anonymous names on blogs or social media. But there might be personal instances, though, of someone who's so hardened and who blasphemes God and the gospel with so much disgust and vitriol that you just might have to let them go in that moment. It's important to see that this isn't a condemnation on your part, but it's really to free yourself to go to someone else and gain a listening ear from someone else. Because if the name of God is to be lifted up and it's to be made holy, then what better way is there than when desperate people respond to the call of the gospel and when they grasp hold of Jesus? And the third assessment we have here in verses 7 through 12. Honestly assess our ethics according to God's nature. Honestly assess our ethics according to God's nature. Jesus brings us back again once, once more to prayer. And this time he talks about prayer in a very bold way in verses 7 through 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. So the one who knocks it will be opened. The reason Jesus can say this is because he, he, Jesus as the son of God has an intimate understanding of God the Father's nature. He knows deeply of how God the Father loves his children and how he loves to give. He knows how the gifts that he gives are good and how he responds favorably. There's a certain confidence that takes us aback in this passage. Like we almost have to explain parts of it away or to add exceptions because it doesn't seem like it matches up with our own experience. But rather, we ought to do what Jesus does. Revel in the giving and caring nature of God the Father. He knows the needs of his children and he cannot wait to give good things to them. Do we ask with this sort of boldness? It's not presumptuous. And we ought not to to ask feeling entitled though, but with a humble longing. Because God's waiting. God the Father is waiting. Verse 11 makes that very clear. You earthly parents know how to give good gifts to your children when they ask. So how much more then would your perfectly heavenly father? It's not a bother to ask him. We not ought to question his his giving nature. Perhaps instead, when we are confronted with our prayers seemingly going unanswered, we ought to ask what it is that we're praying for. The father doesn't give stones when we ask for bread. He doesn't give serpents when we ask for fish. He doesn't give what is useless to us or he, he doesn't give imitations of what seems to be good and yet harmful to us. It's sometimes when we pray, we ask for stones or snakes. We may not realize it. It might be, it may be intentional, it may not be, but sometimes we ask for things which are actually detrimental to us. And yet God though knows our true needs and, he, and whether we can discern them or not, and yet he's kind enough to give us bread or fish in those times. Our prayers may seem like they go unanswered or that he really doesn't give us what we wanted, but perhaps that's a grace that he didn't give us what we wanted in that particular moment. Maybe he's actually doing something better for us in a more meaningful, lasting, eternal way. It takes a trust, not in looking at whatever response we're given in the moment, but in Jesus' words about the fatherly, kind nature of God. And that requires us to make a judgment call an assessment of who he is. And that brings us then to his final statement in our passage, 
verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The Sermon on the Mount is an extended treatment of ethics in the kingdom of God as we live upon the earth right now. It's how disciples are to live before God and before others. And the statement which we commonly know, or as we commonly know as the golden rule, helps then to close a large section here of the Sermon on the Mount before Jesus starts, will start to move into his conclusion at the end of chapter 7. And so verse 12 is really the, the closing summary of the whole Sermon on the Mount ethic boiled down to this. But it's not only the summary of the Sermon on the Mount. It's also, he says, the summary of the law and the prophets, of the whole Old Testament standard of living horizontally with one another. The two great commandments, the first, love God with all that you are. The second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that his call for disciples and how they're to live here is at, the, at, at its heart is ultimately the same law and the same standard that it's always been. This whole time, he's been calling them, and he's been calling you and me to be living in this whole person way in emulation of God. And this fatherly, this giving, this loving nature of God is the very embodiment of that principle that we find here in verse 12. That he himself is the one who is generous and kind. That he gives to the undeserving and he is merciful to those who wrong him. That he gives his son for their reconciliation. He gives their, his spirit then for their strength and for their renewal. Do to others as you wish they would do to you. Isn't that who God shows himself to be over and over? And so we're called then to assess God rightly, to properly discern who he is if we're to follow him then as these whole person disciples. Children emulate their parents because they love them. Disciples as children of God emulate their father and his love because they love him. And we love because he first loved us. And that's why we love to talk here about uh, about the cross at Redeemer, because this is ultimately how we assess the nature of God. If you've been around here for a while, then you know you've heard how much we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're new here with us, if, you're, um, if you've been with us just for a little bit and you're trying to figure out who we are, well, this is it. We love to talk about Jesus. We love to talk about his cross. We learn so much about God just from that event. We learn about his holiness we learn about his mercy, but we, and we learn about his, self, his loving, self-giving nature then to reconcile us from our sins and into fellowship with him. It's our source of life as we are brought out from death and into a new way of life. And that life now is lived never for a moment apart from the shadow of the cross. And if you're having honest questions trying to figure out who God is, And I I would encourage you to sit at the foot of the cross for a while and gaze upward at Jesus. Think long and hard about his willing sacrifice in the place of undeserving sinners and you will begin to see and recognize and better assess who God is. That if God is so willing to give and to reconcile at such a cost to himself, then he is to be trusted in whatever circumstance that you find yourself in. We'll come to the table here in a moment where he reminds us of that again, where he gives us signs of his giving character so that we can then grow in our trust in him. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to grow in wisdom as we make assessments in the world. 
Help us to grow in our honesty as we assess ourselves, to see ourselves rightly. Let us also, though, see ourselves as you look at us in light of the cross. We ask that you would help us to discern and assess our witness in this world, to be doing the right thing, to be giving the gospel to others, and to be assessing well how to give it to others. We pray that you would also, um, that we would see and assess and judge you rightly, and that we would, as, as we do so, that we would do likewise, that we would grow also in our faith and our trust in you, and that that would stoke us in our trust for you in prayer and to ask for the right things, to ask for good things and to trust that you are giving us what is good. Remind us again of your character as we come to the table and as where you feed and you nourish us. In Jesus' name, amen.